The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is sort of a unique one. Um, we're going into a, a, a domain that we have not discussed yet uh, for a number of reasons, uh, none of which are any good. Uh, but certainly we are talking about classical archaeology, which is really sort of the benchmark and the foundations, if you will, for the uh, initial, really, distribution of archaeological knowledge, if you want to call it that way. Um, we have not discussed the themes of ancient Greece, Rome, uh, Persia. We have not gone into it in any grand detail, um, but it is certainly high time that we do that, and I can think of no one better to do that than uh, Dr. Rachel Koser. Dr. Koser is an associate professor of art history at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She was educated at Yale University and New York University's Institute of Fine Arts, and she specializes in Greek and Roman art and archaeology. She has published articles extensively on topics including the Parthenon, the Venus de Milo, and Roman Germany, as well as a book called Hellenistic and Roman Ideal Scripture, The Allure of the Classical with Cambridge University Press. Dr. Koser has received fellowships from the Center of Advanced Study of the Visual Arts, the Getty Research Institute, and the National Endowment of the Humanities. Currently, she is working on a research project concerning the use and abuse of images in classical and Hellenistic Greece to be published by Cambridge University Press. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, let me begin with a couple of questions that I think our audience would be very interested in. And they would begin, I think, with uh, what got you involved in classical archaeology? How did you get started? And how did you select this particular area of archaeology as opposed to, say, others? Sure. Um, so it really goes back to my childhood when I was fascinated by the Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths, which is this beautiful book with really nice woodcut illustrations that I got obsessed with when I was about four years old and loved to read, was very curious, and so on. Um, and after that, I started taking Latin in high school and loved it and decided to do a major in classics and Greek and Latin in college, and I was, but I was also interested in art history, and so it sort of drew me in that particular direction, and um, here I am today. You know, it's interesting. I think that a lot of archaeologists, a lot of professionals certainly, and a lot of the public seems to equate art history and classical archaeology as if they go hand in hand. Um, would you say that's true, or would you say that that kind of in, implicit connection has changed over the years? true that there are people who define themselves very much more as art historians studying the works of art and others who define themselves as archaeologists. I would say I do both 
because what really interests me about a work of art is its context, where it was used, who is using it, what it means to the people there, and that is really only revealed through archaeology. It's not enough to just look at a beautiful object in a museum and see it as an aesthetic experience. To me, it's much richer and more exciting if it has this broader context. Um, So to me, that's what archaeology is is bringing to the field of classical art and how the two can enrich each other. So I think you're really transitioning into an issue that I think is really critical because way back when I was starting out, which was, I'm embarrassed to say, a very long time ago, there was sort of a bifurcation, if you will, between traditional archaeology or classical archaeology and anthropologically oriented archaeology. And as you indicated, the entire question of context was really one of the fundamental differences between the two. And certainly when I started, uh, the, it wasn't really that important necessarily, or it wasn't really emphasized that greatly, that the finds themselves are important. It's the situation in which they were found, the context, as you basically said, in which they're found. And at that time, and we're talking about the 1970s here, there was really a very disjunct uh, approach that would separate classical archaeology, where, where the traditional objectives were to really find majestic works of art and sculpture, and and, uh, you know, new archaeology, if you will, in which the anthropology perspective was put ahead, the actual lives of the so-called people, um, and the common folks, if you will, was, was emphasized. And classical archaeology, I think, stood apart from that because it emphasized the majesty, the elite, the, the kingdoms, the, the processions of hierarchies, and, and the magnificence of the architecture. How do you see that situation in your field now versus how it was in the past? And, and you've talked about context, so I'd like you to expand on that a little bit because I know your work moves in that direction. Absolutely. I think it varies person by person. There are certainly people who are particularly interested in beautiful monuments and majestic monuments, and having written articles on the Parthenon and the Venus de Milo, I can't say that I'm entirely immune to those charms. But to me, to understand the whole life of the object, um, the way it, it, from its moment of creation, which I think has been our traditional focus, through its kind of life as people interact with it, as people do things with it, as it, in many cases, suffers injury or damage, um, and its final demise, if you will, that whole biography of the object is something that I think is becoming really important to people and is connected to a general movement in historical studies towards addressing the materiality of the object, the object as a real thing in and of itself. So in that sense, I think there has been a movement that is very much influenced by anthropological approaches and that has really benefited classical archaeology as it has many other fields of archaeology, as you've explained. Do you see a transformation in the way classical archaeology is being taught, say, here in the United States? Uh, That's part one. And the second question I would ask you, is there a different approach in classical archaeology in Europe and in other parts of the world uh, vis-a-vis the way that they teach their students and the way students are generally taught uh, to pursue their profession um, from that perspective? question. I would say that things are changing, but slowly. Certainly when I teach classes of graduate students at the Grad Center, I, they often seem scandalized and amazed by what I'm doing with the sacred subject of Greek art. Um, so I would guess that perhaps there's not as much change as maybe I would like to see in how it's done, although I think the next generation will be, there will be a greater one. Um, There are certainly individuals in Europe, and I think that the disciplines of archaeology and art history are not always as separated in um, many European, the way that the European structures of departments are often, you know, what I would be doing would be classified as a classical archaeology department there so that um, the kind of disciplinary departmental structures are not as firm, and I think that that can be enriching for classical archaeology. So maybe in that sense, the Europeans are a little ahead of us. 
Okay, you said that. That's very interesting what you just said, that your students are scandalized. And, and, and why would that be? I mean, that, that, that's an interesting perspective and one I'd like you to capitalize and, and expand upon. Sure. Um, I think that when I'm teaching, for instance, classical Greek art, which is often easy for students to see as this sort of to take it for granted, to take it as, as something that is so familiar to us because we've seen a million, you know, marble statues of standing people and, um, and so on, and to try and reveal the underlying tensions and complications um, that are expressed through these works of art um, to reveal, you know, to think about the ways in which these works of art very much assert political purposes, um, reveal gender identity. That kind of thing, I think, is still unfamiliar to many students, and um, so is the idea that all classical art is not ha does not have as its sole goal kind of naturalistic representation, um, but is instead striving for other things, and naturalism is a kind of byproduct. I think they're very surprised by that. They assume that, you know, Greek artists just tried to get better and better and better, quote-unquote, until they got naturalistic, and... That is, you know, that's something I'm always trying to work against, with this goal, the idea that that's what Greek artists are striving for. So in a sense, uh, you're sort of refocusing everything, and it, it seems like you are, in a sense, uh, effectively disabusing a lot of the students of what they might have expected in terms of, of where the course was going, um, where, the, where the message and, and the general discipline themselves are moving. Is that, is that uh, an appropriate assumption here? I think so. I think that it's a different way from the sort of the manner in which the survey of Greek art is often taught at an undergraduate level, and I think it's good to to question the received narrative and not to try and say that um, right if it's bad, but just to to think about what the other possibilities might be and to try and make it a little bit messier. I think there's something that seems very clean and pure and neat about the way that people interact with Greek art, symbolized by the fact that everybody thinks, oh, these beautiful, pristine white statues. And when you bring in a slide of them, you know, garishly painted in the way that the restorations show and talk about how people, you know, put blood sacrifice in their laps and has had them in front of smoky altars and kissed them and touched them and did all these things to them. I think it is, it's really simultaneously genuinely shocking for students, but also resonates with ways that we deal with images that we don't necessarily consider art. Um, and since most of the images that we look at in Greece were not considered art in our sense of the word, I think it's very helpful to have that have those perspectives. That's interesting. I mean, you say most of the images, and I'm assuming that that extends to the sculptures as well, mm -hmm. and the representations in some of the major works of architecture are not uh, typically considered in that vein. What were they considered at the time? And I know that a lot of your work is focused on that, the interpretation mm -hmm. that sort of exp expands upon the purely visceral and goes much more into interpretation. I think that's where some of your work seems to be. It's not I don't want to say revolutionary and cause a commotion here, but certainly innovative. Um, how would you uh, how would you characterize that, and what is your perspective on that? Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of works of art, what we call works of art, that were created in Greece, um, had particular functions which were unfamiliar with because our because what we have as works of art, they don't seem to function the same way. So, on a temple. Um, the sculpture of the pediments, the metopes, the friezes, etc., those are all things to enhance the temple's religious function. They're not meant to be, you know, appreciated in a museum context. They're meant to increase the sense of awe and terror and wonder um, of the building to expand on its resonances through mythological narratives, etc., votive statue is meant to be a kind of intermediary between yourself and the gods. Um, if you give it to the gods, you hope for things in return. It's a very, very sort of quid pro quo exchange. A uh, statue of a king could be set up not just so that you know what he looks like, but so that you can use that statue as a way of interacting with the king by wreathing it, by crowning it, by singing hymns to it. A funerary statue is a way to um, 
make contact with and honor the memory of the dead. And if the statue is injured, that injures the memory of the dead, which is why it's so important to keep them keep them in good condition. So I think all of these works of art, and you know, between funerary, um, political, and religious works of art, that's most of what we have in Greece um, for sculpture. You know, they had they had very powerful functions. So two most base paintings, as we call them, um, were meant to hold things. They were meant to hold wine or water. Or, oil or something, they weren't just meant to be looked at. So I think that there is a way in which museums can give you this kind of impoverished view of images as these things for sort of aesthetic contemplation um, when they were really much more sort of efficacious objects, functional objects. So I would imagine that one of the roles that classical archaeologists have in this day and age would be to sort of, at least in a very very functional way, to consult with the museums and their exhibitors and provide that type of perspective, expansive perspective, if you will, that you're giving and say effectively, look, this is not just meant to be a beautiful representation, but in a sense it emphasizes the importance of religion, the importance of of, uh, of holding the classical gods in awe, if you will, and and having uh, effectively broader ramifications on the entire uh, significance of myth and religion. Absolutely, and certainly one of the things I really enjoyed when I was uh, at the fellowship at the Getty was being able to sort of back and forth with the curators about particular works of art and to see how they were thinking and talking about them. And I think the fact that a lot of um, new museum installations as well as museum shows are not organized as sort of a chronological survey but in a more thematic way. So this is a room about the gods and it has lots of statues that would have had religious functions or this is a room about women um, or for a show that I was recently involved with, this is a show about Aphrodite and all the different ways in which images uh, functioned, not, you know, simply religious images, but also how Aphrodite statues functioned in the private realm or in um, jewelry or whatever, that that was, it's very helpful to have that kind of back and forth between the academy and the museum world. Um, so I think that their museums are often moving in that direction, and it's very healthy for them. The new Metropolitan Museum reinstallation of the Roman collection, especially, which is very much about grouping objects by function um, as well as by time period, I think is another a good example of how this kind of new approach to art is um, being reproduced in museums. And we'll be back in this fascinating discussion on classical art and archaeology with Dr. Rachel Koser after these words. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Good 
Good afternoon again. This is Joe Schildenrein resuming our discussion with uh, the classical archaeologist Dr. Rachel Koser, who has uh, recently been involved in publication of a number of books, of a number of, of uh, academic pieces, including a recent book. And one of uh, her primary objectives is the linkage between monuments and memory in, in this new uh, book project that is entitled The Use and Abuse of Images in Classical and Hellenistic Greece. Rachel, why don't you expand on your concepts and, and your interpretation on the meaning of monuments and, and memory and establish their linkages and how they're significant in uh, the present uh, course of classical archaeology, especially in the Greek and Roman world? Sure. So I think a good lead into this is sort of how I came to this project. Um, which was, I was trying to teach uh, the Parthenon on September 11th, 2001. And, wow. Yeah. And my class was canceled, obviously. I was a postdoc at Columbia, so they canceled class that day. Um, but they came back two days later, and I was trying to figure out a way to teach that class and address some of the things that, my, you know, my poor students, a lot of them were first years, they were just starting out, and then, like, you know, they'd been in school for a week, and, yeah, their worlds were blown to pieces. And so I started out by talking about what should be done with the World Trade Center site um, and what kinds of question, ethical, moral, et cetera, questions were involved in the rebuilding. And we had a really interesting discussion um, in which, you know, some of them were like, we should build it 10 times higher, and others were like, that's crazy. And sure. Other people yeah. said, you know, like, we should, um, there's no good, there's nothing that's adequate to this. You, you shouldn't build anything. This is a, you know, a tomb, et cetera. And, and after about half an hour of this or so, I said, okay, this is exactly what the Athenians faced when they were trying to decide what to do about the Acropolis in 450 B.C., because the Acropolis had been destroyed by the Persians in 480. Um, it had been the sort of last citadel and fortress of the Athenian resistance against um, Persia. And all of these questions about how do you commemorate, how do you commemorate something which is a, a memorial, a war memorial, Right, for, right. For Athens and, and also on the WTC. Um, and how do you balance the tension between memory and forgetting um, and make it possible to remember? And I think, you know, that's what really began, you know, when it started me thinking about, well, how is this done in the Parthenon? How do they negotiate this very difficult problem of what happens after you destroy? And the Persians destroyed um, previous temples on the Acropolis, destroyed statues, most of the quarry on the Acropolis were then buried. So thinking about that was a way of thinking about how classical archaeology very much relates to the modern world and how these tensions between remembering and forgetting through monuments are still very much with us. So how did the students respond to that? I mean, this is a total transference and, and really sort of pulling them into the symbolism of the classical world and its relevance to the contemporary world. How do they respond to that? This is really kind of innovative, the way, the way you've cast it, certainly. Thank you. Um, I think it was okay. I mean, I think a lot of them were still kind of shell-shocked, sure. but I think that it gave them a sense a very strong sense of, and a sort of deep empathetic understanding of the monument in a way that might not have been possible um, at any other time. And at the same time, it was a kind of message of hope, like the Athenians came through this, thought about it, of course. I told them, the Athenians waited 30 years, but we can't really do that here. Right. Um, and I think that that's probably, there is, a, there is a difference. But I think it gave them a sense of, like, this is something that will, you know, there's a, there's a possibility of a, a creative response to this that could be helpful. 
Um, and yeah, I think they came out of it pretty well. It, it's really fascinating. I guess one of the questions that I think a more anthropologically oriented person, uh, in this sense w- would have would be, well, okay, all of this is all well and good and, and it's very important to establish the symbolism and to understand the monuments and the memory. I guess an anthropologically oriented person would say, well, okay, how much of the population did this affect? How many people or what segments of society? We're actually thinking about these things, and 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 mm-hmm. and and how much did this of an impact did this have on them? How would you how would you go about answering that? Sure. So I see the people who are in charge of the Parthenon, obviously people like Heracles and Phidias and so on, sure, as yeah. being the elite, absolutely, and a very sophisticated elite. Um, but the Parthenon is a monument that is for everyone in Athens. As far as we know, the whole population, or large amounts of it, go up, went up every year to the Panathenaic Festival, stood around them, stood around the monument, stood around the altar, shared the sacrifice. Um, it's the big communal festival of Athens. Even today, wherever you go in Athens, and it's one of the things that always, you know, makes me want to pinch myself when I'm there. You see the Parthenon. Even right. if you're in the lower city, you see it all around. Yeah. So Absolutely. the sense of this as a monument. But for 30 years, you didn't see anything. There was a thing there in the archaic period. There were a couple of temples. Then they were destroyed, and really there was, there was nothing. And I think the, um, the thing that isn't there must have been very powerful for those people. Um, and then when something is then rebuilt, maybe they wouldn't have necessarily thought of it as this, you know, elaborate, sophisticated, we're going to remember in this way and we're going to forget in this way. But they certainly would have seen that something else was coming out. And the fact that, as Manolis Caress, the archaeologist, one of the main people involved in the Parthenon restoration, has shown that about a quarter of the Parthenon um, building blocks were reused from the earlier temple is, I think, a very strong indication of, like, they're rebuilding with the same stuff that was destroyed. Um, so they are really, you know, springing up anew, and I think that that would have been a meaning that's accessible to a lot of people. You know, Greece has been obviously in the news very much lately uh, because of the situation with the euro and their mm-hmm. fiscal situation. And, you know, you, you have talked about monuments and memory. And, of course, the Greeks, as, as far as I can remember, because I've been there several times, they certainly have a very, very intimate and strong relationship with their heritage. And they're constantly pointing to the, to, to their monuments as, as evidence of, of where they came from and who they are. How do they see themselves right now? And, 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 and how much has archaeology sort of fashioned their perspectives on who they are and where they're going? And I'm sort of stepping a little bit outside of the classical boundaries here, but I'm interested in your perspective on that. I think that the question of where Greece is and the way that archaeology has shaped it is a very telling one for Greece. Because, and for this question of monument and memory, because I think that the Greeks have very selectively emphasized certain parts of their past and others not. If you go up to the Acropolis, say, you see the great remains of classical Greece. Um, you don't see the mosque that was once there, the mm-hmm. Byzantine church that was once there. Um, the you know Ottoman fortifications that were there, um, all of that was gotten rid of in order to preserve this kind of classical past. And I think there's a desire to look back to the classical past, which makes it a very heavily freighted one, a very heavily freighted sort of set of memories in Greece, um, because that is a time that's very clearly like they are autonomous and, you know, democratic and producing all these wonderful things. So I think that there, there's an intentional prioritizing of those memories over the memories of 
you know, when they're under Turkish rule or when they're in, in the in part of the Byzantine Empire or so on. And you know, who's to say whether it's good or bad? America also has its you know its kinds of memories that we we cherish, and then the memories we tend to want to forget about. I think every country does that. Um, I think that it sometimes means there's a there's a lot at stake in the interpretations of the classical past, and I think that that can get in the way of certain. Um, of the natural questioning and and back and forth of academic life because there's so much of identity that's tied, Greek, current Greek identity that's tied up with the classical identity. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think it can be, it can be problematic, but you know, we all choose our paths. I think you put your finger on it because you're seeing, obviously, and again, I, you know, it, it just seems like a natural segue into looking at where the Greeks are and, 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 and their tradition and their fierce sense of sort of independence that stems to what you have put your, your emphasis on, which is monuments in memory of that period of Greek glory. And then here we are again, you know, the Greeks, in a sense, being overrun by the rest of Europe and trying to tell them what to do in a sense. And, and I think you, you sort of see it. I mean, you see it yeah. in the streets and, and in the demonstrations and in uh, the resistance to, to a lot of developments. And I would assume that that, to some degree, is housed, housed in this very, very serious and well-justified pride over the uh, origins of Western civilization, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And- and and so I mean we we're sort of faced with this uh, phenomenon of history repeating itself. Um, your own work, uh, certainly in terms of of collective memory, um, what other things can you tell us? Uh, say in terms of the Parthenon in in, in particular and its function and 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 how it served to uh, mobilize and, and and to sort of unify, unify the Greeks in terms of the progress of their culture and the developments in their civilization. Absolutely. So what interested me most about the Parthenon was its ambivalent status, that it's both a war memorial for the sufferings of the, of the Persian Wars, and there are uh, literary quotes that, um, from, for instance, the Athenian order Demosthenes that make this quite clear, but it's also a victory monument to the Greek victory in the Persian Wars. And one of the things that's most striking to me about the Parthenon is its very clear representation of defeat, defeat of the of the good guys that frequently on the metopes you see the um, you know the Greeks being defeated by the centaurs or by the Amazons or so on and you right. see them coming right. and so on and that's very unusual on a victory monument usually victory monuments are extremely unsubtle celebrations sure. um, but I think it's appropriate to the Parthenon, because it's both, because in a sense, simply to celebrate the victory without acknowledging the cost of it would have been to slight the memory of the people who perished on the Acropolis defending it in 480, or the, you know, the many people who died at the great Greek victories. And so I think that there is this wonderful tension in the building between remembering the sort of challenges of the past and celebrating how they overcame them, and that this is particularly effectively done because it's done, above all, through mythology, because myths, whether it's myths of the Greeks and the Amazons or the Lapiths and Centaurs or Giants, that all of those um, offer a little bit of contemplative distance so that you can you can remember, but you're not seeing like yourselves, you're not seeing like the Athenians being defeated by the Persians. You're seeing a kind of mythological reenactment which allows you the distance to kind of grieve, but also know that there's a sort of eventual triumph. Um. 
it's it's really quite fascinating because when one visualizes stele or monuments in the ancient world, one's impression is this is all about glorification. This is all about mm-hmm. total victory, and yet your interpretation here is that the Parthenon, in a sense, is showing us frailty, and it's showing us that these victories came at a cost. And uh, I think we're going to go to break, and after we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what that means for Greek civilization and what the implications are going forward in terms of how uh, effectively the Western mind was formed by both sides of, of this struggle between glorification and an understanding of frailty. We'll be back after these words. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. We all face some economic uncertainty in our life. What makes the difference is how we take command of that and survive. Tune in to Strategies for Financial Survival with host Michael Figueroa. Michael has been up and down the road to success several times, and along with his guests, will share the skills of survival. By assessing your strengths and skills and applying them to your future, you can make it through tough times, regardless of your field. Listen every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and we are dealing with a fascinating topic today and, and one that we have, unfortunately, in this series, ignored for a long time, and that is the development and, and the evolution, if you will, of classical archaeology, which is really what most people think of as being the initial foray into archaeological research and thinking, uh, because it go, the, the, this kind of study has certainly captivated people for, for the longest time, and really sort of exposed us initially to the evolution of Western civilization. Uh, my guest is Dr. Rachel Kosar, who is sort of a pioneering archaeologist of classical archaeology. She has expanded the horizons of, class, of classical studies from uh, rote art and architecture to more and a more interpretive perspective and, if you will, a more anthropological bias or, or perspective on these situations. And we were talking about the symbolism of the Parthenon and that it may, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'd like you to expand on this, it, it sort of depicts sort of the glories of the human condition and its frailties. Um, and, and, and that's something that we typically don't see, say, in depictions of uh, Mesopotamian art or Egyptian art or any of the previous art forms for the sort of touchstones of Western civilization. So why don't you uh, expand a little bit on how you see the Parthenon and symbolism and what it meant going forward or going backwards? Absolutely. Um, so it is, I think it's an unusual monument because it is so rare to see both victory and defeat mingled in this way. And I think that it's very much a product of a particular historical moment, which is that moment of the sort of height of the Athenian Empire, it's built between 447 and 432 BC, which is pretty much um, the glory days of, of the Athenian Empire and the height of Athenian self-confidence. And I think that that self-confidence perhaps makes it easier to acknowledge the suffering that went on during the Persian Wars. And, of course, in acknowledging the suffering and in acknowledging the idea that the uh, enemy was powerful and nearly won, you are, of course, in your own way, 
praising yourself because you won, right? You, you beat right. this really difficult enemy. So it's, it's a rhetorical strategy that I think is used to particular effect in Periclean Athens um, with the Parthenon. In later monuments, you don't see it so much. In the Niki Temple, for instance, created during the Peloponnesian War, you see victory, 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 victory. And you don't tend to see so much defeat. And I think that it is shows up on a few on monuments to the war dead. Occasionally, you see the defeat as well. And those monuments are, in essence, I mean, the monuments to the people who died in war. So they are memorials of of defeat, at least at the individual level. Um, but that this goes away. And so when you get in the Hellenistic period again, sort of great large scale monuments to um, to war, such as the Pergamon altar, those are really all about victory. Um, so it seems as though the, the Parthenon is, in a sense, sui generis. It's not something that gets picked up on in, um, in later Hellenistic art and certainly in Roman art. The Romans, the Romans never die um, in their <laughs> That's art. Right. So I think it's it's a very it's a very unusual monument in that way. Really impressive. Are we but. are we seeing are we seeing glorification and memorialization of of the culture as it sort of degenerates into its declining phases? Because the impression that I'm getting from you is that when Greece sort of reached its Greece reached its peak, it sort of exposed itself more to the to a, of a sort of a, a admitting a vulnerability. Whereas when the when the culture is, is more in decline, they're sort of grasping, I won't say grasping at straws, but in a sense, they're trying to glorify their victories, 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 as you indicated, and that is, is that, may, may that be interpreted as a symbol of cultural decline? I always hate to use the word decline, um, because okay. people tend to say, for instance, that the Hellenistic period, or the, the traditional approach to the Hellenistic period was this was... This is a degenerate area and yeah. era, and it's just not as good as the classical in all these different ways. And of course, I think there is this sort of cultural bias of like, well, it's not a democracy, so we don't like it as much. Um, right. And I love Hellenistic art. I love the Pergamon altar. I love the Venus de Milo. Um, I would say it's a real cultural change, though, that there is a change from the kind of ability to depict this extremely nuanced. Um, in a public monument, to depict an extreme with the Parthenon, with a few other monuments of Athenian democracy, with say the plays of Euripides, to depict this very nuanced cultural dialogue, which is ambivalent and tense in, in the ways we've illustrated, and that um, later one tends to see, particularly once you have um, instead of a democracy, when you have a um, a series of empires from Alexander the Great onwards, uh, less ambiguous and more forthright political message. And certainly, it's very, you know, the art is fantastic, and it's, but it's very, it's more single-minded, and I think that that responds very much to political situation, which, in which the king needed to feel that he was kind of always victorious, and there was no, there was not a lot of room for nuance um, with yeah, the great kings of Pergamon or Alexandria. Let me let me shift the topic just a little bit here. Um, obviously, we've been talking about uh, you know Greece's contemporary situation and mm-hmm. and what type of uh, sort of trials and tribulations they find themselves. Obviously, heritage of monument and, and preservation are are have always been very very critical in in in, in the Greek in the Greek ethos, certainly, and also in the Greek economy. Um, do we see any changes and advances and potential for the Greeks to sort of get themselves out of their situation by sort of advancing heritage tourism and, 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 and encouraging uh, efforts to, uh, to revitalize preservation efforts in some of these monuments that are clearly pervasive across the islands and all over, and and does that hold any potential for uh, leading to some sort of economic recover and revitalization? I think tourism is important. I think it's been important to the Greek economy for a long time. Um, 
But the problem with tourism is that it's based on the ability of other people to have the extra money to come and visit you. So in a recession, like the global recession from 2008 onwards, Greece has really suffered, um, not necessarily because Greece was suffering, but because other people from Germany or from England or from the U.S. or whatever didn't have the money to come. So I think that, in a sense, although I would love to see more promotion of um, Greek monuments and better access to museums and so on, I feel like cultural heritage tourism isn't enough for Greece, but they right. really, you know, they need to be looking more outside that because I think it is, it's too dependent on the rest of the world and the rest of the world can't always hold their, hold their end up, as it were, when we're right. all suffering, too. Where do you see the future of classical archaeology, not necessarily in Greece itself, but certainly in other parts of the world? I know you've done some work in uh, Ptolemaic Egypt. And uh, what is the future and what are the trends in in classical archaeology, things that we can look forward to, new directions, both commercially, uh, both academically and commercially? Sure. So... Ptolemaic Egypt is a really exciting place because over, well, since the end of the Cold War, essentially, um, Egypt has been more open to underwater archaeology. And because parts of the great capital city, Alexandria, um, were underwater, there's been tremendous transformation of our understanding of Alexandria through that kind of underwater archaeology, in particular because we've pulled the well, not we, Um, excavators have pulled up a lot of monuments that are very Egyptian in style, Mm -hmm. both new creations and antiques uh, imported from other places in Egypt. And it's really changed our idea. We tended to think of Alexandria as a very Greek, purely Greek city. And this has changed our idea and given us a much more nuanced understanding of it as a more culturally hybrid place with a mix of Greek and Egyptian forms. And I think that that's a trend that um, sort of has really changed our idea of the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt uh, in the Hellenistic period. I think that there's um, the potential to do the same elsewhere, particularly in the Hellenistic East, but a lot of it is dependent on geopolitical uh, events. If, if, say, Afghanistan becomes a safer place to excavate, I think we'll see more more there um, that would give us a much better understanding of sort of some of the far reaches of the Hellenistic world. Um, In other, sorry, do you want to jump in? I apologize. No, no, no. This is is exactly what I want to discuss. I mean, where, where things are moving in that direction, do you see a focus shifting away, say, from classical Greece or even classical Egypt um, into other parts of the world because of geopolitics? Do you see anything like that? Do you see a trend like that? Well, sadly, it's still possible to excavate in Greece, whereas it's getting much harder to do so in, say, Syria right now, um, which has the potential to do, you know, to be a tremendously informative area of the world for us. Um, Afghanistan, ditto. Um, Much of the Near East has become, in in many ways, unfortunately, I think, more difficult to operate in than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Of course, yeah. So it is, and I think that this is a loss for classical archaeology in particular because um, it means that we turn more inward and looking more at look more at sort of Greece itself and to, to a large extent Turkey as well. Um, one good thing is I think we're seeing a lot more interest in Western Greece, that is Sicily and South Italy, and there's uh, a lot of interest now in, in Sicily. There's going to be an amazing exhibition next spring in, in, at the Getty Museum on, on Sicily and the uh, archaic through Hellenistic eras. And I think that that's that kind of thing gives us a, a better sense of the sort of reach of Greece that we tend to think of it as sort of centered on Athens. And I'm a prime example because I love to talk about the Parthenon and other Athenian monuments. But um, in the Hellenistic period, Greece really becomes the, the controlling force in the Mediterranean. And I think thinking about Greece in the Mediterranean context is a very useful thing to do. And um, 
certainly a lot of my own scholarship, both in my first book, which was about the relation of Greece and Rome, and then in this book, which is about sort of how Greeks use images in ways that are very analogous to ways you see elsewhere in Egypt and the Near East um, and Rome. Um, it helps us see this, this country not as sort of unique and isolated so much as part of a bigger context. Um, but you certainly put your finger on the changing and shifting geopolitical landscape and how that affects what we can do and where we can do it. I think that the, hopefully um, one of the advantages that we have in this regard is the rapid expansion and perfection of, of, of remote sensing technologies and new strategies that will allow us even to take advantage of scenarios where we don't have direct access to these parts of the world, but we can certainly pave the way for doing future research projects at times when, hopefully, these geopolitical situations will stabilize and we can get back on the ground with a little bit more focus. Are you seeing that as well? Absolutely. I think that technology has really revolutionized our field, our fields and there's so much more that we can do without actually having to dig and without having to have a lot of destruction of, of you know, potential monuments. Um, so I think that that's, that's a real plus. On the other, on the other hand, um, war is very bad for monuments. It's very bad for archaeological sites. I think no part question. of our current interest in cultural heritage comes from things like the looting of the Baghdad Museum in 2003 and our realization that so much archaeological knowledge can be destroyed so quickly um, when it's possible, you know, when the when government sort of stops being stable. The destruction and looting at Aleppo is a primary example yeah. of where that's unfortunately going in this day and age. And uh, hopefully we will develop uh, or come to our sensibilities at some point. Obviously, archaeology is not at the forefront here, but certainly it's a secondary passenger on these issues. Um, I want to uh, thank my uh, very special guest, Dr. Rachel Kauser of the Graduate Center of City University of New York and uh, Brooklyn College for uh, this very enlightening discussion on classical archaeology and its future directions. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much, Joe. It was great to be here. And we will see you all next week at the same time. And until then, good day. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 